0: Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Maria Paraglise, a teacher of 25 years and published author, is here with us today to shed some light on her daunting experience of growing up in a dysfunctional home as the daughter of a spiritual prophet. Actually... This spiritual prophet is also described by her as a narcissistic father who often exploited her trusting nature to exercise control over her, and he justified his behavior by using the theology of something called the Urantia book. Maria's father claimed to have channeled the voices of Jesus and others, and when other Urantia followers questioned his channeling, He stopped that practice, yet continued one-on-one secret conversations with Maria, acting as, quote-unquote, God's prophet. He would share daily communications and miracles from God, knowing when someone was going to die somehow and attending deathbeds at God's behest, confronting Satan as the representative of mankind, and had visions of angels sharing writings called The Unity Treatise from Celestial Beings as severe warnings to the three branches of the Urantia movement, and much more. Maria is soon to publish her book titled Culted Child, in which she explores the turbulent experience of her childhood and utilizes her story as an opportunity to communicate the signs and symptoms of being raised in a cult or narcissistic environment. Her website, cultachild.com, archives every resource she references in her book. Check it out. Maria's concern is for the increasing number of second-generation adults leaving these kinds of smaller, intensely personal family cults. While it's painful that her father's narcissistic pattern of crisis and triangulation continue even now to sabotage relationships amongst family members, Maria warns that her worst regret is allowing the narcissistic prophet to influence her oldest son, preying again on a young, empathic, and idealistic mind, as so many cult leaders do, causing him to redirect his promising future from college aspirations to instead listening for the voice of God on a mission of saving lost souls. That is until he too recognized the ruse and experienced shattered faith. Here is Maria now. Welcome, Maria, to the show. I uh, I know that people just got to hear a little bit about who you are and a little bit about what brings you onto the show. Of course, I want to hear from your perspective uh, and also. You know, I'm interested when you contacted me, I was certainly interested because it's one of these situations where people think, oh, my story is so different and it is, and it isn't. Uh, And as you've probably done your research, you can see and connecting with other people, you can see while some of the details might feel out there or different or the words that are being used or the names, whatever still the techniques, you know, so go for it, go for it. Let me just say thank you so much for what you do.
1: The words really make so much of a difference. I mean, the road that I've traveled, I recognized that. I, I recognized my life and my issues and my uh, the little the little things. I recognized in many of the podcasts that you've done, not only with the people you've spoken to, but with just that you've done on your own. I appreciate so much you putting a name. To a feeling where uh, a person like me can say, wait a minute, this is something, Mm -hmm. this has a name, this is something Mm -hmm. people do this. And and so thank you so much, first of all, for just it, because it's such an abstract issue. There's so it's so abstract that, you know, you can easily be talked out of that this even exists, because you can't put your hands on it. You can't prove it. It's not something that shows physically. It's very true. I, I really want to thank you so much for having that um, available and continuing to do the work that you do it really means a lot to people out there. You know, I didn't know there was such a thing as practice memory loss. Who knew? And there are studies done on practice. You can practice. You can practice um, forgetting. And after a while, that part of your brain, that, that memory part, Will start to shrink. And I'm no scientist, but from what I have understood from the research that I have done is that not only do you have abuse amnesia, but you and stress amnesia, where you can't remember because of the stress or possibly because of the CPTSD. But if you have been told, don't tell anybody, you know, remember, this is just between you and I and God. This is a you know, if you ever, you know, betray the trust that the father has put in us and in our family, our special family and in our special relationship, you know, you will be cut out of it and we could lose this special meaning that our family has. So if your if your own parent is, your own father is going to say, okay, remember not to not to repeat this to anyone over and over and over again for your whole entire life. You have, I mean, I have this, I called it my gray box that would just come up and take that and automatically it does it. And as an adult, you know, as an educator, as a professional, um, as someone in school, myself constantly in trainings and trying to learn, I have to remind that thing not to happen. As soon as I hear a term, I go down that next path. And so it has been really just the, such a blessing to have someone like you and have everything um, that you have, that that you pursue, because you pursue so many different tendrils of this situation. It took me um, a very long time to recognize. I mean, in, in my 50s, I finally turned around and had my light bulb moment. And so it... You know, it's, it's painful to look at the regrets of things that have happened that, you know, I, I could have possibly not had happen.
0: That is very painful. You have so much information. And I like also all the terminology that you were uh, sharing with me in previous emails and things like practice memory loss. Uh, so there are some sort of little nuggets that are going to be good for people to be able to have as takeaways. And so what I'd love for you to do is to kind of take us back, if you can, to a little bit about where your story begins. So people get to know you and what brings you to this podcast, basically to this place in your life. Okay. Uh,
1: Let's see. Well, I was raised uh, with the Orangian book as our, uh, Religion—they don't really call themselves a religion, but as our spiritual experience, we're followers of Jesus. Uh, G- they call Jesus uh, Michael of Nebadan, and I, I want to say that the Urantia Book—Urantia um, means Earth, so it's about the Earth, it's about its people, and it's about where we came from and uh, who we are and where we're going. It's about there's a whole quarter of it is about um, the life and teachings of Jesus and a lot of the excerpts that the bible does not tell us about because it's supposed to be the fifth epical revelation which uh comes after the bible because the minds of today are different than they were 2000 years ago and of course god would update the uh, you know his educational process for us and so here is a lot more information that we're now as human beings able to handle Uh uh-huh and so yeah, the whole Urantia history is, is a whole, probably a whole podcast. Uh, the Urantia book was channeled by a um, sleeping subject, they called him, who remained anonymous. The book was uh, published in 1955, but it was begun in, uh, let's see, they took, I think, three decades to write it. Uh, and it was channeled through this person to only between one and five people who were allowed to be in this particular special group as the book was written. While it, it's not, I guess Rick Gallen-Ross has said in something that I read of his that the Urantia book itself or the Orange movement is not a cult, I believe it absolutely began as one Perhaps it's now considered a religion for certain families. Perhaps certain families use it the way people use the Bible, and you know, live by the good. Uh, you know, there are very positive messages in it. But it absolutely, from what I've learned about cults, began as one. Uh, from what I understand of the way that it began, uh, Dr. William Sadler was the the main um, teacher. And leader of this group, mm-hmm. and Christy Christensen, who I met when I was nine. She took me by the hand and told me and talk about you know second generation adults coming out of cults. You know, she she took me by the hand when I was nine and said how important and special you know my generation is to this movement because just like Thomas who walked with Jesus and already had trouble you know doubting. Um, there are the the faith that we have. Um, we were not the people who were involved in the the book being, you know, transcribed, channeled and transcribed and written and edited. So we were not part of that original process like the people who could walk with Jesus. And so our generation needed to have even more faith than, you know, the previous. And so it, it was a bigger, you know, it's not just dad. I grew up going, you know, our summer vacations were always Urantia, Uh, conferences. And after a while, even by the time I was, you know, 10, 11, 12, uh, usually it was a family vacation. If it was a, you know, a national conference, it's international and it's in many, many languages at this point. But uh, at a certain point, mom kind of fell off from going to it. Although we did hold study groups in our home, you know, it's the most frightening thing to say, you know, my father did this. I mean, that's like being a little kid telling, that's betraying your family, that's betraying God. I can just hear what my mother has to say about this, <laughs> but, um, but you know, it, it does have to be said that it is very different to say, um, well, our cult leader, blah, blah, blah. But when your own father tells you he was chosen by God to adjudicate Satan, he looked at Satan and he said, my God, he's beautiful. And just felt the pain that Satan had, and the, and all of the universes saw, uh, and were astonished that he forgave him immediately. These are the things that I, you know, the stories that don't tell anyone. Remember, you know. And so it, it might be a late night story that I would hear, you know, after lights out, and then he'd stand, you know, stand in my doorway, you know, and kind of wake you up, and you'd have to be listening and, and um, hear one of these you know, new stories that, and so, um, so after he channeled Jesus and he didn't, uh, he did that in front of a study group at one point. And when those adults started questioning him and gave him a hard time, I think he backed off with that, Okay. but certainly it certainly was still
0: quite easy to keep me, you know, um, under that spell. Right. And so I think also imagining that you're in bed and that he's standing there and you get woken up or you're about to fall asleep or whatever the situation is, you're in this vulnerable state and you're also then going to be hearing a story that may or may not be disturbing. And then you're supposed to go to sleep. There's no way for it not to go into your subconscious and to have dreams and or nightmares about what you were just told. I'm assuming, tell me about that.
1: Oh my goodness. Uh, my earliest memory, my earliest memories are nightmares. I have one that was recurring, it's recurred my whole life. And I, I think I had it when I was three or four. And I believe, you know, looking back on it, I'm really kind of impressed that I had the perspective I did as a four-year-old. And I see these things, you, you see this in movies now. And I'll always say, look, look, you know, to my husband who has been beside me since I was 15. Mm. And so, you know, because he was the one who would say, no, the sky's not green and the grass is not blue, but the nightmares, um, uh, one of them is I'm skipping along next to my mom and we go to the park and I'm walking down, you know, and I, I say, can I go play? You know, he's here, he's out there. Can I go play? And I go, she says, yes. And I go skipping along the sidewalk. The sides of the sidewalk abruptly fall, you know, are, are, it's like walking out on a pier above nothingness. And there are these pretty, you know, rope chain things that are like what you would see at the movies, you know, to stand in line. It goes along this, this path to lead to the end of this drop off, really. And I'm skipping along in my little shoes and dress and Jesus is hovering over his grave. And his grave is upended, kind of like a a volcano. So if you can picture the mouth of the volcano, because I always envisioned the, uh, the stone, they say they rolled away the stone. Well, that must be round. So the top of this volcano has this round stone that's been pushed out from it. And it's just hanging off the edge as it really should fall, but it doesn't. And he's floating in the air and he reaches out to me and I just reach for him and jump to his arms and. We start to descend down into the grave, and I look up and see the, you know, it's like you're in a well, and the lid is closing, and there is this crescent of sunlight that is just closing and getting darker and darker, and then I hear my mom say, come on, it's time to go home, just when there's a little bit of light, and it stops, and then it starts to open up again, and I come back up out, and I end up waking up. A lot of people who come across the Urantia book joke about, you know, oh, that's the one about the aliens. And honestly, it's not. It's it's angels. The beings that are described are different orders of angel. There was never any discussion of spaceships and aliens and coming from other planets. But people do interpret it that way, who want to kind of put it down, which would mean someone like me would not listen to them. Well, it's about aliens. What were you thinking? It's no, it's not about aliens.
0: It's not right, right. These unseen friends. So you were saying. So describe. Is that
1: so the unseen friends? Yeah, uh, really came out as um, eyes in my nightmares. Like just eyes chasing you. Eyes in a closet. But you open a closet door, and they're in there, and they or falling out of a window, and they they kind of consume you as you fall. Um, so because I think you're always thinking they're always watching. And in the Arantia book, uh, there are many, many times where it talks about how Thomas or one of the apostles or Mary and Joseph or any, uh, you know, it'll not only tell you what they're doing in that moment, but it will tell you what they were thinking and feeling and when they changed their mind and why Mm -hmm. and
0: what their
1: dreams were like. And so you are listened to and watched in every moment and aspect of your life.
0: Mm-hmm. There's not a
1: moment that you have alone. And when you really believe this at the age of 13 or 14, and all of a sudden you're in those preteen tears and saying, Oh my God, this is real. This is true.
0: Mm-hmm. And you're, you know,
1: your father says, Hallelujah, yes. You know, like, like uh, you know, you finally get it, like Helen Keller at the well. Oh my goodness, your eyes are opened, you can see, you know, you you get it. Uh It's pretty frightening to turn around and say, think, you know, I can remember praying, God, I know I believe it. I know you know I understand a lot more than someone my age, but please don't send someone like Gabriel to talk to me because I know I couldn't handle it like Mary. Mm -hmm. So, dad's mantra really was, you know, first of all, just trust me, which I've Learned is not a good line. Um, I know you don't know what's going on with this right now, but it'll all make sense in the end. You only need to know your own one little part in it. Just go and do it. Just trust me. Just go do what I asked you to do. It'll work out. And so okay. that, um, but the thing that uh, we were taught and that I was taught constantly was um, you know, when you come in, when you have a question or you have a concern or you're, if you're looking for a pencil, Okay. It could be something as simple as you're looking for a pencil. All right. Or you're in a dream Mm -hmm. and you're making a decision. Okay. At any, any moment, waking or sleeping. And I can, I can practice this. I can, I am aware in my dreams because I've practiced this.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, uh, anything that you're looking for or you need, you say, father, if you are in my place right now, what would you have me and you stop and you turn your own thoughts off and you listen Mm -hmm. for the Mm -hmm. highest concept of truth, beauty, and goodness, truth, beauty, and goodness. Let me tell you, those are not positive words in my world Mm. because that just, that just triggers me. Okay. Look for the highest order of truth, beauty, and goodness. And that is your thought adjuster, giving these ideas to you, giving this one most beautiful, most truthful idea to you. And that is God's, that is what God would do. And that is what you choose. So think about being a teenager who uh, thinks about, well, what's the best thing I can do for this person right now? Well, I could drop my books and my studying and run down the street and take care of this person, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, follow your first thought and you're an empathic person you're going to destroy your life. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So as a father and as a grandfather, really, he took apart my husband and I, I mean, my boyfriend at the time because you know, I ended up back with him, obviously, but he, he did, he, you know, the stress and everything. Mm -hmm.
0: Got it. Okay. And this idea of your thought adjuster, is that your term or was that a term that was used there?
1: Oh, no, that's a Urantia book term and it, and it, there are different levels of thought adjuster that I can't think of what they're called. I just always said thought adjuster, but depending on your age, you don't even get your thought adjuster until you're five, I believe, Mm -hmm. which is when you make your first moral decision, whether it's right or wrong. And that is the little piece of God that lives inside of you, uh, that comes Mm -hmm. to reside in your mind. And so God is always there listening, and so are these unseen friends who are always
0: around. It's so interesting. I mean, the unseen friends, yes that that's not gonna um, that's not gonna be a calming idea for a lot of people. And others are gonna like that idea. It Sort of depends on what role they play. And sometimes people feel like they're not alone, and others say, "Leave me alone." But I wonder also this i this idea of your thought adjuster. There are some terms that are used sometimes, where I think that was so amazingly transparent. That is what happens within these groups. They don't call it that, but in this Urantia book, they're like, yeah, we're going to call it what it is. Exactly. And, and so then I think you get some desensitization to that. Like that's just part of uh, life. And that's a good thing because we're providing you with that. And you know what? nobody
1: else even knows this, like, unless you're studying the Arantia book, as lucky, as fortunate as we are, and, you know, this privileged family, and this, these, you know, these privileged people, and especially me, because I really am taking it seriously. And I understand how real and true it is. And I'm following, you know, the will of God. And, Mm -hmm. uh,
0: you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I had a quick question also, when you were talking about uh, you used a phrase that you were told Satan is beautiful. I'm kind of curious to go back to that for a moment, if you don't mind. <laughs> he's an
1: angel. He's an angel. So, uh, yeah, he's on a detention planet. And there is more than one. There's there's Satan. There's Lucifer. There's Beelzebub. There's Caligastria. So, um I believe one of them is our planetary prince who still is on this planet, but he's detained on this planet. And the reason this planet cannot, we should be able to communicate with other planets, but we are in a quarantine after having, after our, um, our planetary prince, that's the fallen angel. And so thinking that he is God and that there is no God better than, than me. And so that is, you know, and as that, and Gabriel tried to, uh, it was on the side of Michael, who is Jesus. Um, and so he tried to argue for the, you know, the positive side. And uh, so it turns out that our planet is in quarantine, continues to be in quarantine. And so that was the big revelation that, uh, my dad said he was supposed to be a part of, which would be the sixth epical revelation where um that quarantine would be lifted but he saw him as the beautiful angel that he is and saw him i mean he explained to me how the sides of the room you know vanished and he could see into the universes and he could see satan and he could see the beautiful angel that he was and how sorrowful he was and he really felt for him and reached his hand out to him and forgave him for what he had done. And this should open the communications between our world and the others, which we used to have. There used to be constant uh, travel between our planet and others that we would know about, we would be privy to, we would know these unseen friends were there, we would actually be able to see them, they'd make themselves known. But we are in a state where um, until you know, the next revelation, that's not going to change. And dad was bringing that about. So he was a part of that. So he, that is how he, you know, that is why I say that he's, he's never called himself a prophet. That's what I'm calling him now that I'm learning how he works.
0: Uh-huh. Got it. Okay. Right. And I'm wondering also, you know, I've, I've worked with the number of people who were, are. The family members of people who run cultic groups, uh, or who started started out as cultic groups, or whatever, however we want to talk about it. But what what matters more in what I'm bringing up is that there is this idea sometimes for some people that they're treated like uh, part of a legacy, and they are given other kinds of treatments. Other people said that was no blessing because. I was under much more of a watchful eye and I was expected to do everything just right and just so and stay. Precisely. Okay. Precisely. I
1: was that one. Okay. Um, And so what's been difficult is that as I've kind of woken up and understood and researched things um, and come to understand uh, I'm not the one who's supposed to question. I never was allowed to be the one to question. I'm the oldest um, You know, I don't speak for my siblings at all um, and I You know, I I respect um, Dr. Langone's quote on um, It's a website the you know International Cultic Studies Association website that where he says um, you know n- no one else in the cult may have felt or experienced what you felt. They may not even feel that they were in a cult. They may not have felt that it was a negative thing, so you know I understand that uh and so that 's why I say I do not speak for anyone else in my family, but I know mm-hmm. that I was always expected mm-hmm. at, because I always did i was as the oldest, I was the most respectful uh I was the one that listened um I'm at least. Five years older than my next sibling so um, you know all the way down the line when I have one that's 15 years younger than me he is not having the same experience that I am he is not having a positive one I can tell you that Uh, but it's not the same experience so um, but that was me and so as I realized what was happening um, what this all was and listened to him less and he you know, he began to recognize that. Um He called less. Um His, he would either, as a, when I was a kid, he would either be absolutely laser focused on me, mm-hmm. who I'm talking to. No, you're not allowed to see that person. You need, you need to be busy with this. Busy thinking about this and busy do, painting that. Um, Busy bleaching this and thinking about that. Uh, or, he had no clue where I was and I was in, a, I, I was in some precarious situations. Uh, a couple of them, he
0: put me in himself. Okay. And so a, a couple of them, he put you in like what sort of situations?
1: Being someplace for a Urantia meeting and then absolutely not paying any attention to where I am because someone else, because he has an audience that's not me. I am the audience when no one else is around.
0: Oh yeah. Right.
1: When he finds an audience, that's what he lives for. He's always trolling for that audience. I mean, you could be in the grocery store and you no longer exist and you can you might as well sit on the floor in the corner and wait for him to finish because he found someone to, to talk to. And so to come back to when I, when I made that, you know, started recognizing and listening less and, uh, he called less, and I did not call him and i didn't ask if i it went on to where I did not ask about him either um and then i rec- and then i i finally realized that um you know i we don't have a relationship do we well i you know what and i can't i can't have a relationship with him now that i now that I think about it and so um yeah, I did. I I said that to my mom because I was having difficulty with my relationship with her because she does not like that. You know, she didn't like that this was happening that I wasn't asking about him that I wasn't talking to him. He wasn't calling me and was she doesn't she wasn't saying that, but I said, "Listen, I I I said I can't have a relationship. I texted, I can't have a relationship with him and I'm having a really hard time having one with you because she was not being incre- you know, really easy to talk to and uh she came back with well if you don't have a relationship with him then you don't have one with me either
0: oh wow
1: and so that that's been a whole other thing too and so but that is that is the you know exiting a cult right and and that's why I say that's why I I, I had mentioned um that exiting a cult you know is different for everyone obviously
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: But, for it to be your your father and your parents, you're absolutely losing your family. And there are people out there who don't have any idea that my family is what it is and works the way it does. And that I am being, you know, they see me as being disrespectful to my parents, to my father, that I'm not calling and speaking to them. And of course, you know, my parents have their ear and you know i there's not a whole lot i can do about that so it does affect the rest of my relationships and so what i've recognized is that when people are coming out of cults i've watched some of these programs where they've said you know oh there's this family out here or there are these friends who have said gosh i've been waiting for you to wake up and come out and here you know come to my house i'm always here for you and that kind of thing and for me it's like people are seeing me not speak to my dad people are seeing me have a hard time you know, having a conversation with either of them. Uh, they don't have any idea what I'm actually doing. And so it's, and, and, I've, and I've, I was able to uh, connect this when, uh, with these suicides that are going on with, Yanya uh, Lalich was on this A&E special that I happened to catch. And I've read her book, at least one of them, um, and mm-hmm. she, um, she mentioned that Jehovah's Witnesses, um, especially these men coming out of the Jehovah, Jehovah Witness cult who are shunned, have a so much higher percentage of suicides, of suicide rate. And I thought, you know what? That is so understandable. So understandable. Yeah. Because, I mean, I understand it is absolutely devastating mm-hmm. to get to that part where you've, you know, that's what no contact is. And that's where I got to. And that's where, that's where I am. And so to not physically have your mom and dad, even though you can't really, I can't handle being, talking to him, listening to him. Be, I can't put myself in that situation. It's like being a school of piranha with him or being with a a shark you you just you don't know what he's going to say that he could just push your buttons and or can just pull you in um and so you know I I understand the the devastation and the grief and the loss so I have gone down I mean before ever seeing this and linking it to that um you know I was studying grief and loss and Mm -hmm. um what, what, you know, how, how to handle that because it's, it's like losing someone. It's like someone, you know, dying that you
0: can't be with and hold and hug and just love. Right. And, and, you know, I think that there is something that is at times harder for some people, not at all, but harder for some people knowing the person is still there. You're just, being barred from them, or they have decided to cut off from you like this invisible force field. And there, there is the potential still for a relationship. They're just keeping you from it, even though they probably think you're the one keeping them from it because of the decisions that you've made to leave.
1: And that would be, that may be the situation with my mom, Okay, where I I would be open with that. Um, But the situation with my father, I absolutely cannot have contact with. Okay, right. I I have just come to understand that. And that is devastating because he is my, he was my world. He, he was my world. He is my world. I mean, Mm -hmm. no one loves daddy more than his first little girl. I mean, obviously you know, I I don't take anything away from my siblings by saying that, but I I mean, just to say that, yeah, he, he was my whole world. And, um, and that's how I took every single thing that he said, you know, so, so deeply.
0: Yeah. Right. And I'm wondering also about your siblings. So are they still in, have they left? What's their story?
1: Well, you know, they're part of the family. It's not, i mean, they're adults, grown adults living their own lives. I mean, and he doesn't have the same conversations with them. And, you know, and they can say, all right, no, I don't want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And he'll stop and he'll make them crazy about something else instead.
0: <laughs>
1: okay. Because that's the narcissistic side that I didn't realize even existed. Uh, and, you know, that's why I've just in, in, enjoyed your program and, and kind of connecting those two things, because there were so many mind blowing things that, as I you know, was coming out of this. And, understanding uh how this all works uh that you know so in the same way that i'm expected to think differently um his expectations of them are different and and their tolerance is you know he he'll allow them to have less tolerance than
0: i'm allowed to have uh-huh right so that helps me understand too why it is important to not have contact
1: i i would have to be disrespectful constantly and i can't i can't bring myself to do that it's not me i can't do i give so much credit to them because they're able to cut him off and say no you know say no it it takes so much for me to do that that i can't continually do that and i can't and i also there's a part of me that is so hurt by what he by him having dragged my son into it And, and sent my son off into a a completely different path where he was, you know, college bound and goal oriented and, you know, to see him drop all of that and run in a different direction and, and then to, to see him experience the shattered faith that I experienced and to recognize that he missed the boat, and he let the train leave the station without him. And he had stepped away from friends who had been supportive and kind and, you know, right in there with him, and they had all been going in this one direction. And they kept going on that train, and he didn't. And there's absolutely no way for me to have a conversation with a person like that.
0: And how long has that been since, as you describe it, he got derailed? Well, that was in high school. Um, And so, and he,
1: uh, you know, was having stomach issues and and intestinal issues, which a lot of it was anxiety and stress. To the point where I had him see every single specialist Mm -hmm. in Tampa. And then I took him to the Mayo Clinic for a week of tests, um, a week and a half of testing because they... You know, they saw all the symptoms and they ran all of these tests and they said, yes, absolutely. He has anxiety, which exacerbates this, you know, the, these intestinal issues, which have absolutely no name. Mm-hmm. They don't, you know, it isn't any of these horrible things that we've tested them for. So he is the healthiest sick person who exists. We laugh about that. He's the healthiest sick person who exists. And so, uh, you know, so he was really unwell uh, for a, quite a while, probably five years. Um, but after the Mayo Clinic, after being told you know and, and a mother being told your son is healthy and bursting into tears, you know, I, I burst into tears when I when they said he's absolutely healthy, that you know everything's okay, i didn't burst into tears because he's okay. I burst into tears because they didn't have an answer for me. Yeah,
0: right.
1: So to be told, no, it's not crohns, you know and I burst
0: into tears because it's not crohns, you know
1: <laughs> you know it's not <laughs> right.
0: Thank you for telling me what it's not. uh-huh,
1: yeah but uh, yeah. Uh, for him. You know, as he was starting to feel a little you know, he he was still under the weather and he had gone to stay with his brother and it just for a few days and he got this call from his grandfather
0: mm.
1: and this is just to show you what uh you know, and his grandfather said, No, just you know, thought I'd say just check in, which he'll do every once or twice a year when he thinks about you because he doesn't have another audience or somebody else to be bothering. And he said, I just thought I'd check in, I just wanna know, you know, just want yeah, I was thinking. Mhm you know, don't tell your mother this, but I'm the reason that you and you know you and your girlfriend broke up wow, and while it was actually my my son who had broken up with his girlfriend, who he was really very much in love with at the time, uh because he was going down this path of you know he he had his religious reasons, and they just weren't going to be a match. And uh, that he needed to find someone who really, you know, believed in the Orange Book the way that he did and followed it the way he did. So mm-hmm. he was going to have to leave her. And really, it was him doing that um, because she, she, was, she was a wonderful girl who was really very much in love with him at the time. But what dad said was, um, yeah, what I did was I, I told her how, you know, your your Rancho book really is a, a more of a scary thing for someone who's a Christian like her because um mm-hmm. you're going to um not raise your he won't raise your children in the Christian faith the way you would mm-hmm. want them to and um you should really be fearful of that and so he was basically calling to just tell him that he had told his you know that he had made the girlfriend your your mm-hmm. fault, which Looking back on some things that had happened makes a lot of sense. But, um, you know, to call your grandson when he is ill and to just pour salt on the wound just tells you how much more he can do that you can't even amount. You can't even think of what the kinds of comments that he can say and the
0: things that he can do to derail you. Right. Okay. And so after that call, then what happened? Because norm- You know, typically someone would say, why are you meddling in my life? Uh but instead, what happened?
1: well at this it was around you know it was at this point where he had had the shattered faith, which was why he was just like he he had recognized by this point, so for Dad to call him and say that to him was literally he was was rubbing salt in the wound because he knew that he wasn't getting the phone calls from him anymore, so I believe that this was a narcissistic dig that because he saw oh, he's not calling me at night, he's not asking me about this chapter, he's not wanting to read these papers, he's not, oh, where are you, what are you doing? Oh, well, let me just, you know, okay, well then, if you're not gonna, then I'm gonna hurt you back. And, you know, that's that narcissistic thing. And so, he did spend a long time on his own, quiet, Um, took a while for him to, you know, get back out and make friends and just go into the workforce and just not pursue education the way he was going to he's an, an incredible writer he's had his writing on podcasts he's um lovecraft is his i mean his language and his, his vocabulary is just is stunning uh so you know those things he's made for that and he he's getting back on that horse yeah.
0: good i'm glad to hear that I, I'm wondering, uh, something else as you're talking and you might have other notes that you want to share, but I, I wanted to talk about what is needed when you come out of something like this, but I don't want to jump over if there were more stories you wanted to share from your experiences there first.
1: Um, well, I don't know if I said that he, you know, that dad had daily communications with, with God, um, daily miracles. Um, that happened you know like he just happened to go here and he happened to be in the right place at the right time and um god told him just just walk outside just walk out in front of the store and he said well i got my arms full of things you know and he's laughing and ch- chuckling that you know, as he's telling me this story in the middle of the night you know i've got my arms full of things i'm in the middle of doing this but okay and he laughs and he puts his things down you know. Just go outside. Just go outside in front, and you know this voice of God leads him to go out in front. And you know there's a person standing there who needs something in particular, who he happens to have. You know, which is a thing that he happens to have that answers their need in that very moment. And then he's able to use that opportunity to teach them about the love of God and what God, you know, has to offer. And by the way, this is the Rancho book. And. Da-da-da-da-da. And so those things happened every single day. Uh, there were things like um, there was an angel, you know, that appeared as a bright light. Um, you know, when the movie Frailty came out, I said, oh, my gosh. You know, when the dad in Frailty, you know, with Matthew McConaughey and Powers Booth um, and uh, the, his the father comes running in and he and, you know, wakes up the boys in the middle of the night. I have something incredible to tell you. I have something important to tell you. And he had just envisioned and listened to an angel, which had just been this bright light on his dresser. That just, this very bright light that came out of this trophy. And he was like, okay. And went and told, you know, and it turns out in the end that this was all true. He really was receiving messages from angels. Well, you know, I remember telling my boys, guys, I lived that. That was my life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there there were nights when he came in, and one night it was, um, you know, there was one night I was coming home, driving up the street, coming around the blind curve that you know so well, and these two you know, this bright light shone on my, on my hood, and it, it was so bright I had to pull over off the road, and just as I did, these drag racers came flying around the corner, and I would have been you know, I would have been killed and I was saved by this angel that then went away. Um, that also leads him to know when uh, someone is going to die um, and leads him to be at someone's deathbed. Uh, and so he'll be told uh, to get on the road. Um, so-and-so is going to die. Take this exit. Oh, okay. I got to get off this exit. Uh, take this exit. Okay, pull in here. All right. Um, and then he would say, Well, you know, and I went up to the elevator and the doors opened and the guy wasn't even at the desk to take my name or anything. And I just walked onto the elevators and they opened at the ICU floor. And, you know, there was a glow around so and so's, the numbers on so and so's door or, you know, a glow around it or maybe it was glowing. And I went in and, you know, the rest of, of his or her family happened to not be in the room as I sat and held their hand. And they gave me, which he did, he did this with Christy Christensen, mm-hmm. um, who was the last surviving member of that original Urantia book study group. So supposedly he was with her in a particular building, mm-hmm. which I found later, I found out that she actually didn't pass away in that building, she passed away in the hospital. So, you know, little things like that are like, okay, so that wasn't true. And, you know, she led him to, you know, be the one that she gave information to, passed on information to. And there are some papers, new papers on that shelf over there in that, in that book, go and open that book and then she passed away. So he was the only one with that person when she passed away and, and received the, you know, the, the legacy, you know, the baton to continue, uh, her legacy, to move, you know, move forward with the Arantia movement. I mean, you couldn't even look online. There uh, is something called the Unity Treatise. So Not only was he, you know, channeling voices, and he's always told me about all of these things that have gone on my entire life, but online is something called the Unity Treatise. And it is um, written by celestial beings. Supposedly, he got it from an anonymous friend, but he really believes it to be the thing that it says it is. Um, and it is uh, chastising the three major uh, groups that run the Urantia uh, movement because the Urantia movement has fractured since 1955 into three groups that kind of do three different functions. Um, and so his okay. this document states how it warns severely warns these groups that they need to come back together into one group and this is how you would do it and it is like you know written out for them precisely what to follow I, I could not believe there was something in print and on the internet that i can find to say wow look 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 at what i've been listening to in the middle of the night by myself, you know? I mean, that's that is yeah, man, there's the reality of the situation.
0: Right. And so going back to the term reality, not a lot of that going on. <laughs> uh, we need yeah, well, let's talk about let's talk about reality for a moment because while I while I'm not saying this uh cuz I don't know. I wasn't I wasn't there for all of these quote-unquote miracles, but my Critical brain, my sometimes admittedly cynical brain says, if no one was there, then there's no proof. It would be like me saying, I did a magic trick and it was amazing, but you didn't see it. Well,
1: if this starts when you're three, if the magician starts with you when you're three years old and starts doing magic tricks for you and you start having those nightmares about Jesus taking you into his arms and into the tomb, I mean, you're hooked for life. And that is a daily, nightly thing that is going to happen. And if you're the only one who's really going to listen and your eyes are going to get big when he talks, and you know to be respectful because there is a backhand that comes with that if you are not. So there's there's a physical side of it. I mean, you know, there's the narcissistic side of it. There's narcissistic rage where you do not
0: say no, especially me, especially me. Especially you, right? There's the narcissistic rage. There's the narcissistic injury. And so you injure them if you look away or if you fall asleep while they're talking or whatever else, and that's it.
1: Oh, you better not be fiddling with your fingers. Are you listening right now? Well, you're sitting on the edge of my bed in the middle of the night and I'm trying to, Uh I was trying to sleep, but no, I am wide awake. My eyes are wide open. My fingers are sitting still now and I'm, you know, 12 and I'm listening or I'm 14 or I'm 17. And I'm trying to get out of here, <laughs> which is why he, which is why he did not like my boyfriend.
0: Oh, cause your boyfriend, got it. Right. Got it.
1: Okay. Yeah. Cause my boyfriend could not be, you know, more down to earth and critical.
0: <laughs> What's really important. I think also is this idea that when you are listening to these stories and you're told you have to listen, When you're young or even when you're older, you can get the impression that the reason that you have to stop fiddling with your fingers and the reason you have to have your whatever, sit up straight and have your eyes open, is because of the importance of the message, not the neediness of the messenger. Exactly. And if you don't listen, you will get a
1: slap. Right, right. Okay, so if you're at the table and you didn't quite, I mean, I had, I remember one thing where I'm, you know, I I would... Do what I learned later, not too long ago, is diso- mm-hmm. dissociation, mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: where I qu- kind of can't focus on what you're saying. And I realize I'm at the kitchen table and mom is asking if I want more of something. And I'm just not getting the idea that I'm supposed to be answering her. Like it is just like I've grayed over for some reason. And he comes smashing his hands down on the table, across the table. Things are spilling over. Things are falling off the table. And I'm up and running backwards and and crying and hands up and chased. And, you know, you're being slapped like this and yelled at when your mother talks to you, you better listen and that kind of thing. And, you know, I've yelled at my kids and I they've definitely gotten a spank or two. Uh, they're in their tw- late 20s now, and they would tell you that they needed it at the moment, uh, but, you know, certainly not what think kinds of things that uh, that went on there because it just was, you know, there were also things like, you know, at the end of a couple of those, I, you know, when he stormed down the hallway and everyone went off into their rooms because, oh my God, somebody's getting it. You know, I raced out the door and raced through the woods and ran until I couldn't breathe anymore and got probably half mile three quarters of a mile into the woods that I knew so well and flopped down on a rock. And then one of my brothers would come and just show up panting and checking on me. You know, one of my little brothers just coming to see if I was okay. I'm like, Where do you come from? And what what really gets me is um, one of my siblings reminded me of trying to learn the times tables. I couldn't tell you my times tables. I couldn't. And I'm an elementary school teacher, but I don't trust them. I just don't trust. I just don't trust it. And so I have to say that I've learned why. And that is because, you know, as I'm trying to memorize it, and I'm not saying it fast enough, you get a slap on the side of your arm. So if you don't say it fast enough, you get a slap. And so, I mean, it's on my side of my arm. It's not even going to leave a mark. It's just, maybe it's going to make a difference. Maybe this will not get into you, you know, what, you know, and I'm like, you know, and so I still struggle with certain ones just because I just don't trust it. And there's also that gray box that's going to come up, mm-hmm. which is my practice memory loss that now, instead of me telling it to take something and hide it for now, and it'll pop up later when someone reminds me of, oh yeah, that's right. I did know that person, didn't I? Mm -hmm. You know, now it just comes up and takes stuff and I can't, and, and I can't even retrieve it. And I'm watching that happen, like in my mind, whatever that was, I can hide it from myself. And that's when I, and I found that there is, like I said, there are studies on practice memory loss and also certainly on the brain and how it develops when you're, when you're forgetting things, when you're, trying to forget things.
0: I think also the the release of cortisol where where you have a stress reaction when you know that you're under threat. You know that you're going to be hit or uh, corrected in some physical way or publicly shamed or disappoint someone whose opinion of you matters, whatever it is. It is going to shut down temporarily the parts of the brain that have to do with memory and reasoning and judgment. Being able to r- remember your times tables. it's going to be very hard to imprint that information if your brain has gone into survival mode because you're too worried to be able to focus. And then what happens is that sometimes parents or teachers who used to hit, or in some countries might still, they're causing their students to not be able to remember.
1: Yeah, I don't do any, as an elementary school teacher, I never do timed tests of any kind. If it's not your thing, if you can't think of it right now, let me show you three or four different ways that you can figure it out use your fingers if you need to, because I do. Let's do it together. You know, let's use these little blocks. Let's, you Now there are, there's more than one way to skin a cat. There's more than one way to get there. And if your brain works in a different way, you certainly, you know, some people, my husband is built that way. He loves the competition of a timed test. And that absolutely terrifies me. Um, the other thing about decision-making that you mentioned, uh, there was one, you know, their decision-making is absolutely impossible after coming through an experience like this, because. Even though you're following the thought adjuster and, and listening for the highest concept of truth, beauty, and goodness and following, you know, what you think is that best suggestion, dad always knows better.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What you should have done, what you should have done was this, what you, yeah, you should have done. And so you're not even going to trust yourself, you're going uh, to go and ask his opinion And so, I mean, I just remember being in school and, you know, having the teach sociology teacher say, you know, where do you stand on this particular subject? And completely shutting down. And I could see myself, I was floating over myself somewhere in the room. And I'm in high school, you know, I'm a teenager, but I am so terrified that I am going to show God the wrong answer in this, you know... in in this ethical question or moral question that she's just saying, okay, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? You know, just like to show us how to use this little, like to her, it's just a little exercise. To me, I can't answer a question like that by myself. I need to know what the answer is. And so decision-making becomes something very difficult.
0: Right. I mean, I think that there there are a lot of people who are afraid because of this conditioning. And then there are a lot of people who also believe that if they make their own decision, it will be the wrong one. And then they go to someone who advises them or gives them advice. What you don't question at the time is if they're right, because they might not be. It was just their opinion. So it's the one you have to listen to. But I also think that People are not going to make a decision unless they know they're safe, unless they know it's okay, not only to make a decision on their own and to trust their instincts, but it's also okay if they make the wrong decision, that nothing bad is going to happen because of it. Not when there's unseen friends watching every little thing that you do. Ah, uh,
1: mm-hmm. got it. I mean, right? if they're telling me what Mary was thinking, they know what I'm thinking. Right. They know. They know what Mary and Joseph were thinking. Exactly.
0: Okay. I wanna thank you for today and your time and the the work that you're doing to put the information out there to be able to do more education and prevention, which I'm all about. So thank you, thank you. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure.
1: I so appreciate this opportunity.
0: One more thing before you go. I'm so happy that Maria and I had a chance to speak. It's fascinating to hear about the group she was raised in, and there's so much about it that honestly is very trippy and different, and even the language sounds like it's from a science fiction movie or an Orwellian novel. The book is what the group, the foundation, was built around in the 1950s, and its main purpose is to distribute this book. The book says that it reveals the mysteries of God, the universe, world history, Jesus, and ourselves. And that certainly covers a lot of ground. And the group is described as believing in what they say is the latest in divine technology where people or beings exist in your mind, I suppose, as your thought adjusters, connecting you with the creator's energy and allowing for your spiritual evolution. So, The members of the group are considered to be the custodians of the Arantia book so that it remains unchanged and gets disseminated around the world as a guide, as a way, I suppose, to answer all questions. And the author is considered to be anonymous. Sometimes groups like this will say that the author is anonymous because the author or authors believe they're doing something called automatic writing, which is that they're channeling messages from another dimension, another time, another life force. The fact that the book itself is over 2,000 pages makes me think about the interview I did about a year and a half ago on this podcast with Dr. Yuval Laor, a friend and colleague who has studied many things, including something called temporal lobe epilepsy, which has as one of its symptoms that when someone is having the sort of epileptic episode, They believe they are communing with God, or God is communing with them, or some being is guiding them, and they often write profusely, pages and pages and pages, sometimes thousands of pages, in a highly manic and dissociative state, sharing what they believe to be the spiritual truth or truths for all. I can't help but wonder if there is a connection here between a potential brain disorder and this book, but I don't mean to insult. It just seems to fit, but you can decide that on your own. When we hear some of these stories about people who have been in groups like this, it can seem highly sensationalistic and dramatic. And certainly the language itself is what I want to highlight and then let you know something that I've learned and something that I've always tried to remember. After the sensationalistic terms are shared, and then the smoke kind of clears, and we see it for What it really is. So, first, there are many terms used by Urantia that many people have never heard of that I wanted to highlight for you here. Here are some, just some, of the many terms you learn by studying the writings of this group. First, something called the Jesus Paper, then, the Contact Commissioner, Contact Activities, Celestial Personalities, inhabited planets intimation of multiple creator deities the first source and center super universes master spirits power directors and one of the most chilling for me is the thought adjusters the morancha level of existence the midwayers with whom you're able to make spiritual contact and the secondary midwayers that supervise that contact. The Lucifer Rebellion, the superhuman planetary government of Urantia, something called the Seventy, the Seraphim of Progress, and lots of automatic things. Automatic writing, automatic overdrives, automatic talking, automatic hearing, and something also kind of chilling called Automatic Forgetting, that Maria talked about, which seems to be their term for amnesia, or what I think is enforced amnesia. The Arantia Apocrypha, and another kind of chilling term, the Unseen Friends. That would give me nightmares. So all of those terms are fascinating, but really, what is important to do when you hear it all is to remember that there is a woman, Maria, who was raised in this group where her father was one of the leaders and seems to have been a malignant narcissist and could be terrifying and intimidating and emotionally neglectful. And Maria, like other children raised in this group and other groups like it, experienced debilitating nightmares and a feeling of floating and derealization and not knowing what to be able to trust and what to believe. And that's what you see when the dust clears, when you make your way through the sensationalistic and kind of crazy-sounding terminology and philosophy and theology. You picture a little kid trying to fall asleep at night but not being able to because her nerves are on edge. And that is what is true for a lot of people who were raised in cultic groups. And sometimes when they tell their story and people find it fascinating and listen as though they're watching a movie and loving how different or crazy it sounds. But as the listener, please remember that human beings, sometimes children, are raised in these environments and it is way beyond what their systems can handle and they have to struggle just to find peace as they get older and connect with the world, a world that they're not quite sure how to live in. I value Maria's strength and her tenacity and willingness to tell her story. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's radio public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.